Are you ready to perform at your highest potential? Welcome to the Performance Matters podcast from GP Strategies, your talent transformation partner. In each episode, we'll interview industry experts and explore best practices and innovative insights to help your organization improve performance. Hi, listeners. Michael Thiel here, host of the Performance Matters podcast. You know, now more than ever, organizations looking to maximize performance are tuning into the untapped value and importance of their diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy and practices. And while DEI certainly starts at the top, its ultimate measure of success is the way it manifests in the daily workplace. So in terms of everyday DEI in 2024, what is expected of you as a company? And what does it look like exactly? I recently caught up with Alistair James Scott, Senior Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Consultant within the GP Strategies DE&I division to gain his insight on this very topic. We had a great conversation, and there is something here for everybody. For all of you interested in the bottom line, Alistair shared some key data points that helped me understand exactly why organizations that authentically embrace practical DEI far outpace their peers in profitability. And for those of you looking for some very accessible ways to further a culture of inclusivity within your team or even within your own heart and mind, well, stay tuned because there's so much here for you as well. So without further ado, let's jump right into this conversation of everyday DE&I in 2024. What's expected of you as a professional, as someone within the organization? So not necessarily someone at the C-suite, but everyone throughout the organization. Here to help me unpack this very, very important topic is Alistair James Scott, Senior Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Consultant within the GPDE&I division. Alistair, thank you for joining me here in the virtual studio. How are you? Oh, well, thank you for having me, Mike. I'm great, thank you. It's just so nice to be able to sit down, have a cup of tea next to me, and just have have a conversation with you about this. So I'm really happy to be here. Well, I know we've been trying to get together to do this for a couple I know. months now and um, unfortunately <laughs> I don't know if my voice is super deep but I'm just getting over one of those many many colds that are going around so hopefully it's actually accentuating my my baritone right now but if I sound a little crazy I apologize for that we're really excited here because we are going to be talking about I think a topic that for many people they know it's important but it's kind of a dark art and that's DE&I before we get started though I'd love it if you could just share a little bit about you I've been working directly or indirectly within the diversity, equity, and inclusion space for, gosh, nearly 13 years now. My background is actually in uh, organizational psychology, so in the, mm. the science of behavior in the workplace, essentially. How do you motivate, engage individuals? How do you design organizations and culture that are going to get the best out of people and unlock performance? And I started my career actually in inclusive recruitment design for a recruitment process 
organized outsourcing companies. So my role there was really to advise organizations in how did they inject objectivity, inclusivity, equity into the, their hiring processes across all levels of the organization. And in that conversation, there were always conversations around adverse impact against minority groups and how do we make sure that process was fair, objective for all candidates. And so that really unlocked my interest into this whole world and space. And admittedly, when I first started the conversation or my career, rather, that was not really the language around the conversation, but I quickly learned what the DEI world was all about. And that really set my trajectory in my career. So since then, I've been working in a consultative capacity across the last 13 years, working with organizations that's not only focus on recruitment, it's better to expand that conversation into organizational design, cultural development, and also working with senior leaders and executives on their behavior, their impact, and how do they think about DEI within the realms of their strategy? It not being a separate thing, but something that actually is a key to unlocking wider success across all parts of their business. So really, in a nutshell, in the last 13 years, I've been working quite squarely within that space to really ensure organizations are reflecting inclusion hmm. best practice in all parts of their organization. It sounds like you are the the perfect professional to help understand and, and unpack this. Oh, here's so hoping. Thank you for being here. <laughs> oh, absolutely. No, no doubt. So, you know, today what we thought we would do is add another little layer or fabric to this conversation. So today, the focus really here with Alistair is let's talk about some everyday things. You know, this is the year 2024. So let's kind of start this off here, Alistair, with just kind of like um, in your mind, why is this still a, an important topic? We have to think about this in two different ways, the business case and the human case around around this topic. The business case arguably is one that's quite mature. It's been around for a decade, if not more, around why there's value in investing in the DEI conversation, why there's value in terms of injecting us into process change and to ensure we can realize key results as a result of those process changes. And certainly, we don't really need to go around the houses and that too much anymore, I believe. But there was a recent study that was released by McKinsey in 2023. So they released their Diversity Matters Even More report. And they actually found that companies that have parity around gender and ethnicity representation in their senior leadership levels, where they saw profit levels around 39% higher than their peers because of that representation. So (laughs) as recently as 2023, we're still seeing studies and particularly places that are reputable, like McKinsey, saying, well, this is still something to really, really focus on. And I think that's really, really telling that that is still something that is being found as recently as last year. Because if you think about it, in the last four or five years, businesses have become well put under a lot of strain and a lot of things they're reacting to, whether that is the pandemic, whether that is the introduction of artificial intelligence, whether that is rising cost of living and inflation globally is impacting their bottom line, impacting the people that they have to employ and actually where their priorities lie. And you'd think to yourself, well, given all these different things, well, D and I wouldn't be a priority anymore. So many other things. But studies, again, would suggest that's really not the case. And again, the same McKinsey report found, I'm going to read this out to you Mm. because I want to make sure I get this right, that they found that companies in the lower quartile for both, again, gender and ethnicity representation are 66% less likely to outperform others financially. 
Wow. And that has grown from 27% less likely in 2020 when they last published a report. Oh my goodness. Yeah, it's amazing. And even in the context of what we've been for the last few years, there's still incredible business cases to why investing in this work is super, duper important for sure. I mean, you're you're hitting that, first of all, on just the bottom line elements yeah. here. So yeah. if I heard that correctly, was it 39% greater performance on the bottom line? Was that what yeah, that was? Yeah, they saw profit levels 39% higher wow. than their peers if they saw parity in ethnicity and gender representation across those team leadership mm. teams. One thing I want to say that with, with that, though, what's missing from that perhaps statistic, because it just it hints to the fact, well, if you've got representation of diversity, you're going to see these numbers, right? You're going to status profitability. <laughs> what we know and what I know is, well, that isn't really necessarily the case here. What happens in the middle of that is a culture that unlocks the potential of that right. diversity, where we're hearing people contribute, where people feel safe to speak up, where people are flagging risks in the organization. But ultimately, on the other side, people who are listening, taking on board, wanting to elicit diverse perspectives from a diverse community of people. And when you have that culture interacting with that diverse representation, that is where you're going to see that statistic come to life. You know, hearing you, I feel like a DEI practitioner is an organizational chemist in terms of <laughs> you're helping set yeah. the right culture. You're set, you're setting the right uh, yeah. environment, the right elements are in place mm. so that good things can happen. That's kind of uh, in my mind, yeah. ruminating hearing that. I might have to change my LinkedIn title to organizational chemist. <laughs> it's so true because you're like, okay, yes, it, it's important on so many levels yeah, to yeah. have diversity, equity, inclusion. But the fact that when you set the right things in play and it's not as one of the things I really picked up last year from my conversation with mm. Angie was the idea of performative versus practical, oh, yes. you know, just sticking yeah. up a flag mm -hmm. in front of, of your office versus, you know, walking the walk, talking the talk and embracing inclusion in, in all its forms. To me, that was a, a big thing. And what you're saying is it truly is hitting the bottom line. So if organizations are interested in performance at any level, this is something that we need to key on. And that's critical, right? Because we want to make sure that we're connecting DEI with business success, right? You know, of, of course, it's about cultural development. Of course, it's about doing the right thing and allowing people to come to work every day and feel they can be themselves, they can contribute, can add value. And that's certainly one half of the coin here. We're not saying it's not. But ultimately, I want to make sure we're ultimately making successful organizations to but who are also doing the right thing and doing it in the right way. And if I, if I may, I want to just build upon what you said there about this is the right way to do it. it was your, I think it was your language there. It's interesting because that throws up a debate. What, what, what is the right way? Is inclusivity the right way? And for me, then I always go back to the data. What are the studies telling us? What are we finding it's the right way? And that then comes to the second part of this, so what? You know, if the commercial so what is what's going to hit your bottom line, there's a human so what, which is in indicating, well, what is that right way? What is that way in which we expect organizations to behave and what culture we expect to, to experience? I've got a couple of stats again I'd love to share. And the first comes from Deloitte a study they did in 2020 and they found that 47% of employees look for an atmosphere where they can be themselves so ultimately mm. they have to manage who they are 
they won't have to filter who they are in order to fit in. Importantly, they're not having to do that because of a perception that we we have to do something differently or filter ourselves in a particular way in order to be seen as credible, in order to be seen as a top performer, in order to get ahead. Other than actually, we want to be in a place where I don't have to do that. I don't have to spend that extra discretionary effort. I'm doing Mm. that every day. I can just be myself and ultimately focus on what it really matters which is my job and adding value and being appreciated <laughs> building upon that i love mckinsey but a different study in 2021 they found that 51 percent of employees would quit their jobs if they did not have a sense of belonging at work oh wow yeah and just for the benefit of those listening you know adding a new word here belonging and for to my mind belonging is the key output of investment in an inclusive culture where essentially a sense of belonging points to a, a feeling of community, a feeling of connectedness, a feeling of being part of a greater whole, and that you're being valued and appreciated within that community. And ultimately, that sense of belonging, we can connect to long-term commitment to stay, engagement, um, organizational citizenship behavior, all these different things. But over half, people say they would leave their jobs. Notwithstanding, when I first saw that stat, I thought to myself, oh, but you know, that's quite a privileged place that they are able to leave their jobs in the first place. So this is perhaps a sample of people who are in well-paid jobs. So we're going to caveat that stat there, but still really fascinating that that is a need for many people, for sure. Oh, 100%. And you know, the, the thing that leaders are always trying to key in on is how do you set up a climate where your staff, you can key in on that discretionary effort. Mm. And, and I think what you're saying with belonging, that's soil, that's the four elements of, especially in a, in a virtual world, right? Mm-hmm. Where you know, where you're two people on a two-dimensional screen, if you don't have that feeling of belonging, mm. uh, boy, it's easy. It's easy to tune out there. So there's, whether it's a in real life type mm. organization or virtual, I can see how that is such a key thing. So you're definitely building a case <laughs> for, <laughs> for this conversation here, Alistair. There's no doubt about it. And I also know, you know, from having conversations about this, that there's really three kind of different elements or disciplines within the diversity, equity, and inclusion whole package there. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm sure we could spend hours on that. When it comes to practical inclusivity here, I mean, let's just lean in on on that pillar for today. Give us some things. I mean, you you set up the case here that this is important. Matters. Like, what are some things that everyday organizational professionals and workers can do to help further inclusion? Yeah, it's a great, really great question. And one I I get asked a lot because people really are keen to know what they can do to make an impact. The first thing I would always say to anybody is, well, first and foremost, you need to understand what inclusion is before you can take action, right? So you need to know what is expected, you know? And I tend to find every organization who has an inclusion diversity arm of the business, for example, will describe it in a variety of different ways. And a lot of time they'll wrap it up with diversity and representation too. But to my mind, this can be really, really misleading because ultimately, as I mentioned before, diversity is not all about representation, it's about measurement of demographics, it's about metrics in terms of promotion rates and hiring rates and attrition rates. And what inclusion is though, is uh, well, one way in which I always describe it is I lean on a paper that was released by the conference board in 2019. And they had a paper called Where Does Inclusion Exist or Live in the Workplace? And they stipulated, I think it's a really neat way of thinking about it, they stipulated it exists in one of three different places, right? Inclusion exists inside people. 
So we all have our own affect and perception of what inclusion is and how we feel. Mm. So essentially pointing to whether we feel trusted, heard, respected, valued, have a sense of safety. And we can measure okay. that pretty readily in terms of, you know, self-report surveys and things. The second place is in is between people. So that's effectively how we behave. So this is getting to that action point, those day-to-day actions that we can take to positively impact other people's perception of how included they feel. Those two interact really neatly. Third place, is more holistic and they coined it as outside people entirely. So here we're talking about organizational design. So we're talking about whether inclusion shows up in your value proposition, where inclusion is part of your policies in terms of your anti-discrimination policies, whether there's anti-harassment policies, but also in your provisions and benefit packages. So you're anticipating different communities in your healthcare package and your parental Hmm. packages and things. And it's in the infrastructure of your process design and things so and again these outside factors ultimately dictate how people show up and behave and again that impacts people's perceptions of how included they are so really the message in that is to get back to your original question of what actions we can take to drive inclusivity well it's those between people things positively impacting people's perceptions of of inclusion I know I'm a bit of a role here, but one thing I really think is important for folks to realize is one thing that inclusion is not, and then this leads into the actions, inclusion is not about treating everyone the same or in the same way. So it's interesting, right? So a lot of time yeah. when I ask folks, so what do you do to be inclusive? What do you do to make an impact? And I thought, well, I treat everyone the same, in the same way. You know, I make sure everyone has, I don't know, the same opportunity to contribute to meetings, the same time to complete that exercise, that assignment, for example, the same flexibility requirements if, if they have a flex working policy. And I always say, well, is that actually inclusive? Are you keeping in mind the nuances of experience, the different needs, different types of people with different types of requirements? What I think is a more accurate way to think about it is that you want to treat people equally well, but not the same. Okay, so that is a great quote to look at here. So expound on that a little bit for us here, Alistair. Sure. Really, it's about being nuanced in your understanding of the different needs of different types of people. And for the Hmm. individual, well, that starts with nurturing relationships to understand those different needs and requirements of different people. So say, for example, you have a teammate who is neurodivergent. Let's say they've got dyslexia. Well, of course, that isn't something that is perhaps going to be readily apparent to you when you first start working with that person. They may not volunteer that information immediately. So you need to start investing in that relationship. You need to start, you know, having those more informal, how are you conversations. If it's in person, that's perhaps easy to do because you're going to have those collision moments in the office. You're going to go for coffees. You're going to get to know each other and you're going to create a safe environment space for that person to disclose. But it's not impossible to do that virtually either. It just requires a bit more intentionality to actually put in some time to have a coffee catch up, to have how are you questions at the beginning of meetings as part of your routine within your team. And when you start doing that, Mm. then of course, you may create the right safe space for that person to disclose. And when that person may disclose, oh yeah, I'm dyslexic. And actually, you know what? It takes me a bit longer to get to my emails. It takes me longer to respond to things sometimes. And you might even see a spelling mistake in my emails from time to time because I have that difficulty in processing 
grammatical language mm. due to dyslexia. And so treating people equally we well, but not the same way to say, right, well, that person, that colleague who I've invested in, into in a relationship with requires perhaps more time to get back to me on an email. So I need to manage my expectations when I'm interacting with that person. Not only that, maybe I also need to be a bit more patient with that person should there be a spelling error within an email or a documentation because I know that they've got this element of themselves that may require that, that patient. Now, that isn't to say that, that other person doesn't have ways to mitigate for these things and actually can check themselves sometimes. But in that moment when we are trying to treat folks equally well and not the same is to apply either that flexibility in our approach to give folks more time, be willing mm. to allow them to put those mitigations into place and to be patient and understanding and somewhat empathetic when these other behavioral traits arise due to that element of their personality or, or their, their characteristic, I should say. And going back to our cultural or organizational chemist, the first yeah. step there though, from the catalyzation, well, I don't have any chemistry background, by the way. <laughs> you know, I should say, I'm I'm, I'm I'm this, I should say, I am the son of, of a pharmacist and a brother of another pharmacist. So the fact you're saying okay, so you you're getting it. You're seeing covalent bonds flying around here. The first thing, though, you said is is really establishing that culture of trust, of, of being yes. fellow humans, right? Yes. Not worker bees, not anything like that, but it's a place where this kind of level of trust, where disclosure, feeling vulnerable can occur, yeah. and then not taking advantage of that, but mm. saying, hey, let's set some unique expectations based on where someone is at meeting them where they're at, right? Is that Absolutely. kind of what I'm hearing? Absolutely. And so, I mean, we're touching on into the space of psychological safety here, right? Within relationships mm. and within right. team culture and dynamics. And the first step is like, well, there was a, a model done by a guy called Tim Clark, who released a book on psychological safety. And I actually believe this model is quite seminal within that space. And he theorized four different levels of psychological safety. And one and the first and the most fundamental or foundational rather is inclusion safety. So we are mm. creating an environment where people are able to be themselves and can show up in a way that's going to be accepted and not be on a receiving of judgment or criticism. And so going back into creating that sense of safety where that person with dyslexia can disclose, there are some fundamental things which we can do to demonstrate to that other person that we are trying our best to create and maintain that safety for them. And so in terms of like the key actions, a lot of it is around these softer skills you can demonstrate to reveal that culture. So the first is when you're having those interactions with that person, make sure you're demonstrating an active listening, that you're actually there engaging with that person. And I know for many folks listening, that might be a bit obvious, but a lot of the time the obvious things get forgotten, right? Particularly when we're busy, particularly when we're stressed, when we're pressurized mm -hmm. ourselves, we just want to get something done or we're ultimately play lip service to the, hi, oh, how are you, blah, 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 because we're trying to get to a solution <laughs> or an answer, right? But actually be mindful of that when it comes to the relationship and how that person ultimately feels and the safety they ultimately feel too. Pay attention in that conversation. And the one thing I always think about is when you are demonstrating active listening, you're taking in that response, those messages, those answers 
And what you're not doing is whilst they're doing it, is thinking what's your response going to be in the moment, right? So how often do people, when they're having a conversation, when the other person is talking to them, start thinking about the response? So what you're not doing is actually listening because you're spending a lot of your cognitive effort and load <laughs> preparing, preparing your answer, right? It's fascinating. And so what I think is a wonderful demonstration of active listening is saying to the person, oh, thank you so much for telling me that or for confiding in me in this or you know, sharing that insight about the project you're working on or the difficulty with your manager or that success you had the other day. Great. Let me just take a moment just to think about it and reflect upon what you just said, because I want to make sure I come back with a meaningful response or one that really reflects what you just said. Hmm. And that perhaps for some people fills them with fear. Oh my goodness, there's going to be a pause, a silence in that interaction. <laughs> but what that says to the other person, which again, going back to that inside perception of inclusivity is, okay, well, they've listened to me. They've heard me. They're not just taking what I said and throwing it away. They're actually paying due attention, courtesy to it. And then, hey, that makes me feel respected. That makes me feel heard. I trust them a bit more. And they seem pretty authentic. So going back to what you said about Angie, there's depth and authenticity in what we're doing, what we're saying. And that mm. flows from the strategy all the way down to behavior. So that active listening is incredibly important in those moments in those conversations i mean if we're promising our listeners uh practical everyday dei inclusivity tips and strategies this is a fantastic one and it's one that i know that i have personally blown through many times oh, without so I. Will, I'm not perfect. So but, I. <laughs> oh my gosh i'm like oh man so I. I do this with my family this is this mm -hmm. is so much more than a podcast this is a therapy session here no this is great though because like you said it's just sitting with that recognizing mm -hmm. talking about it versus having that feeling of oh i'm a robot and i've checked a box and i've asked them how they're doing and let's move on to you know yeah. business business numbers yeah. numbers type thing that is such a great tip and it's one that i think i personally need to work on i'm sure my wife if she was listening to this <laughs> of course please i please think we're me. all we're all human and we can all be guilty of that for sure but it's being more mindful but that is a, more complicated. Oh, you've actually just unpacked you know a practical approach to active listening there so i'm going to take that and and do kudos so that's just one uh, I know we've kept you for a while here. Let's talk about, give us a couple more practical sure. ways we can boost so, inclusivity. A couple more. So one I think is related to active listening is being mindful of the language you're using as well. So again, okay. that is related to how well you're getting to know another person, how well you're taking on board what they're telling you about themselves and their priorities. So, you know, for example, it's avoiding insensitive terms that could be charged, that could have negative impact towards another person. It could be avoiding using gendered or machismo language towards another person <laughs> or to describe events and situations. I've got my pronouns here on my on the screen for those who can see, right? Being mindful of the, the use of people's preferred pronouns, should that be really important to them? And for many, that's quite controversial, but to my mind, it's just a mark of respect to their preferences and what how they like to be referred to. And again, being mindful of our language, whether also whether it's in written documentation as well as an email or when you are hmm. speaking with somebody can be highly impactful in terms of just being mindful of people's different situations and preferences. Many organizations these days I see have inclusive language guides as to what to say, what not to say. And to my mind, it's not about slapping folks' wrists. It's just about raising awareness of impact of language. I have empathy though for many people because, you know, 
language evolves um, constantly. It churns constantly. In the DEI space and the HR space are still catching up a lot of the time. But it's about then just displaying the effort and the, the positive intent behind what you're trying to do and make that positive impact. So inclusive language, I think, is a really, really important one. You asked for a couple, so I'll give you a third yeah. one. And yeah. one I think is really, really important. And for those of us or those who are listening who really want to make that change and impact, the first two I referenced are behavioral. But this one, I feel, is more around you being that advocate for change within the organization. A client of mine uh, who said to me a year or so ago that behavior change takes too long. We need to make structural change in order to make real impact. And I love that because people can spend months, years trying to adjust and develop their behavior. And that's wonderful, but we're not going to see change quick enough. And mm. so what I would love to see people do is feeling empowered mm. to notice where change towards inclusivity needs to happen and then tell the relevant people what that change is and what it could be. So there's a couple of steps here. Number one, folks need to educate themselves on what some fundamental issues might be that may be impacting diverse groups or oppressed groups or marginalized groups within the organization, whether that is working mothers, whether it's people of color, whether it's LGBTQ plus individuals, whether it's folks who are neurodivergent. And then knowing, well, where are those opportunities, those barriers for inclusivity for those people? Is it in the way that our team meetings have been designed? Is it in the way hmm. that we are hiring right now? So for example, example, is a particular interview question going to disadvantage people of color based on the language that is being used, based on the, the connection with experience that they may not have, based on where they are in society and the blockers in society that may not afford them access to that experience. Or it could be, for example, there's no uh, provision for same-sex parents in our parental leave policy or adoptive parents in our policy, for example, that they are just missing in from the design or the explicit statement of those relationships or parental modalities within the policy. Having that community of educated people is one wonderful first step. And then it's about empowering those people to contribute or even challenge the way things are being done. So that, again, goes back to that psychological safety piece. And I think it's Absolutely. the fourth and final step in that model called challenger safety, where I am able to give feedback to people in hmm. positions of authority, and that is going to be received positively. So there's also onus on the person on the receiving end of feedback to take it in a particular way, in a respectful way. I would imagine people you know, going to the managers and pointing out, hey, our team meetings aren't working for that person over here. Or going to a mm -hmm. talent acquisition partner or a recruitment lead and saying, you know what, the way in which our process has been designed, the tools that we're using, well, it ain't working for people of color or LGBTQ <laughs> plus people. And, here's my and it's not saying I'm going to moan at you with no solution. It's saying here's a problem, here's a solution that I think could uh, help okay. that community as well. It's going to leadership. Should we have a utopian culture where people feel empowered to go to leadership and saying, you know what, I'm just not that behavior that you displayed, you know, it, it seemed a bit, you know, performative, optical. Now that is a mm. big ask and i'm probably talking about the you, need here. you need we some safety you need some safety i have seen that happen when organizations are getting this right and leadership are consistently demonstrating humility <clears throat> asking for feedback looking for that interaction investing in relationships in with individuals at a lower level you can see it happening but the green light does need to come from the leader for sure in that context but 
to give that feedback, to raise the awareness of people in positions of power, influence, to make these changes, for me, are is fundamental to making the change because they're not going to see the things that people on the ground see. People who are individuals at the co-face of these relationships, who are seeing the impact, are hearing it, and perhaps mm. they can advocate for others who perhaps are either don't want or can't advocate for themselves or don't feel empowered to do so. And so I suppose this is a form of allyship in terms of advocating for change right. on behalf of other people. You know, that, uh, and if you heard me typing, it was because I was writing down that key element there of behavioral change takes too long. We need structural, structural change, change. Absolutely. to really expedite. And what you're mm -hmm. saying there is, I, I can see that to get to a point of this uh, as you mentioned, challenger safety, you mm. need some policies in place where individuals that their livelihood in some cases could be on the line to feel comfortable to speak up and Absolutely. say, hey, this is a challenge versus just mm. tuning out, demotivating and, and ultimately leaving or in worst cases, maybe staying and just, you know. Uh, working at, at half of their potential. This, oh, this so, is, yeah, this I mean, is huge. it is huge. And certainly that particular action, you know, you, we will find people listening who mm. will feel quite engaged, empowered, ready to do this in any case, despite that risk, right? Because they believe it and people have that mm -hmm. sort of that rudder in them. But this action does perhaps require it being designed from the top saying, you know what, we are going to commit to receiving this feedback in a particular way. And also not only that, but it's part of our inclusion strategy to empower folks to give insight into what could change, what needs to evolve, what patterns are they noticing that's not, not working in order to make sure in our governance structure around inclusion that we are evolving and continuously learning. And we can only do that if we're listening to our people. So it does have to come from both sides. I believe for sure. This has been a great conversation, Alistair. You've dropped so many great things for me to not only look at in, in my personal work world, but also things for me to be aware of in terms of if, if I see something where I go, this is not optimized mm. for inclusion that I need to actually have the personal onus to not just, you know, be the skeptic, but actually speak up and be, as you just said, a, a challenger of that. I think that's Fantastic. Oh, absolutely. And I'm sure if we had more time, I could go over my points four, five, six, and seven, and eight. <laughs> well, I, I think what we need to do is have you back for a part sure. two at, at some point. Yeah. I know that you're an individual that's been hard to to lasso down here, but we will make sure to do that in this coming year. If we have listeners that want to know more or hear more, what would you recommend would be their next step? The first thing to do is make sure that you access, if you are in an organization that has DEI materials internally, make sure you go and access that, right? Make sure you go to your L&D manager or your DEI manager, HR, and access your internal collateral to know more. If you're also in an organization that have functioning and active networks, so your employee resource groups or networks, go along and either join the networks as a interested party or to get insights as to what's front of mind for those communities in your organization. And one thing I want perhaps a mantra I think is really important to leave folks with is that all of these things, we're, we're not asking you to do an additional what. Inclusion isn't something that should be adding mm -hmm. more to your plate. It is an adapted how. 
just adapt the things you're already doing and the conversations you're already having, the feedback you're perhaps already giving from time to time, the language you're already speaking. You're still having these conversations. You don't need to do more of them. That is a great, great way to close this. And I will just put in a little plug here for GP strategies and our diversity, equity, and inclusion training practice. If your organization, if you feel a little overwhelmed on this, we have a, a thriving practice in, in helping organizations support that. Alistair is a key player in there. If you go to gpstrategies.com, look under solutions. We have a learning services portal where you can find a lot of great information, including some fantastic off-the-shelf um, learning service products that can be accessed. So Alistair, I want to thank you so much for your time and please promise to come back again soon. I would love to. I'll get another cup of tea. I'll be happy to come and chat some more. The Performance Matters podcast is brought to you by GP Strategies. Together, we can create a world where business excellence makes possibilities achievable. You can subscribe to the show anywhere you get podcasts or listen on our website at gpstrategies.com.